This week, Remington and Southeastern Grocers file pre-packed Chapter 11s, Cobalt's UCC seeks standing to challenge its controversial debt exchanges, iHeart 14s enter the legacy note fight, and, as always, weekly updates on Puerto Rico and Venezuela. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg Research Weekly Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in the news of distressed debt and bankruptcies. I'm Karen Lung. And I'm Nick Lichtenberg. We're reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City. On our deep dive segment this week, our distressed debt legal analyst, Teresa Lee, will moderate a discussion by the team covering community health systems, previewing the company's proposed exchange and analyzing the health of both the hospital operator in particular and the hospital sector in general. It's Sunday, the first day of April. This was the second straight week that kicked off with two bankruptcy filings in Delaware, as Remington Outdoor Company and Southeastern Grocers joined the Weinstein Company and Claire's on the docket, all of them assigned to Judge Mary Walrath except for Remington. Remington's filing was expected for over a month as the firearms manufacturer announced a restructuring support agreement in mid-February and initially set March 7th as its outside date to file for bankruptcy. The RSA was amended several times before Remington filed on Sunday night. The plan featured dip financing of a little bit under $350 million, almost $200 million more than in the initial RSA. The dip includes a replacement ABL worth $100 million, which is being provided 95% by term lenders, and a $45 million facility which is being provided by the parent company. The company said that while Lazard had discussions with a number of parties about providing dip financing, most declined to participate due to, quote, stated timing constraints, potential non-consensual priming concerns, and concerns about investing in the firearms industry. The plan would eliminate about $775 million of the company's roughly $1 billion debt load and hand 82.5% of reorganized equity to term lenders and the remaining 17.5% to third lien creditors subject to dilution. The third lien creditors benefit from a guarantee from the parent company, whereas the term lenders do not. Remington projects EBITDA falling to just $5 million this year before recovering sharply. Reorg hosted a webinar discussing this bankruptcy on Wednesday, and subscribers are invited to listen to that replay. Southeastern Grocers, the parent of brands including Bilo and Winn-Dixie, filed its plan just 12 days after entering into an RSA supported by 80% of 2018 note holders. The debtors attribute the bankruptcy filing to, quote, challenging market conditions in the, quote, highly competitive food retail industry within its market areas in the southeastern U.S. In addition to bondholders, the plan also has the support of private equity sponsor Lone Star Capital. The Floridian firm expects to close about 100 of its 600 locations while cutting its funded debt load by half a billion dollars and its annual debt service obligations by $40 million. The plan would hand up 100% of the new common stock to unsecured note holders, subject to dilution, from warrants for 5% of the company provided to the parent company and a management incentive plan. The debtors touted a new supply agreement reached with supplier CNS Wholesale, which, through extended payment turns, will generate $100 million of incremental liquidity during Chapter 11. The company's combined plan and disclosure statement hearing is set for May 14th. Reorg hosted a webinar discussing this bankruptcy on Thursday, and subscribers are invited to listen to the replay. As iHeartMedia ponders a motion to dismiss the adversary proceeding filed last week by the trustee for its legacy notes, 
another trustee moved to intervene on Monday. Delaware Trust Company, successor trustee to the 14% notes due 2021, filed the motion to intervene as a plaintiff against iHeart and a number of subsidiary debtors. The underlying indenture for iHeart's 2021 notes has a negative pledge covenant, the trustee for those notes asserted. So if the legacy notes seek relief based on that argument, the 2021 notes will seek the same. The motion then points out that the notes claims provide for a peri passu treatment with the legacy notes claims and is therefore consistent with the RSA, which calls for single classification across the 2021 claims and legacy notes claims. iHeart, during the status conference portion of Tuesday's hearing, told Judge Marvin Isger that it plans to move for a dismissal of the legacy notes suit by April 6th, and the judge set May 7th as the hearing date for the motion to dismiss. This week, holders of unsecured notes and other claim holders fought back against Cobalt International Energy and its secured lenders. First, the ad hoc committee of unsecured note holders filed an objection to the first lien's OID and make whole claims and the second lien's PPI claim. The group also said the debtor's plan is currently proposed as the product of a, quote, deeply flawed auction. The committee believes that the best outcome for the Chapter 11 cases, quote, might be to re- recapitalize the debtors and that the committee is currently exploring options to potentially do just that. The official committee of unsecured creditors then filed a motion seeking derivative standing. Once granted, the UCC would file a complaint to avoid and recover fraudulent transfers and to disallow claims of holders of first lien notes and second lien notes. The UCC is looking to avoid debt exchanges that occurred from December 2016 through May 2017, as well as asserted first and second lien make-whole and OID claims. The UCC contends that recovery from even some of the causes of action set forth in the proposed complaint could provide for either a substantial or full payment of the allowed general unsecured claims against the debtor subsidiaries. On the island of Puerto Rico last Sunday, the government released the latest revised fiscal plans for the Commonwealth and agencies, including the Electric, Sewer, and Highway and Transportation Authorities. Assured Guarantee released a statement in response to the, quote, little transparency that the government has displayed. For instance, the revised plan projects a $6 billion surplus through fiscal year 2023, but in February that projection had been $3.4 billion. And now it projects a 10.9% cumulative population decline over those six years, whereas in February it had projected a 20% decline. By Wednesday, the PROMESA Oversight Board had outlined a number of required changes to the latest fiscal plans, including modifications to financial projections. The Board is requiring revised versions of the three plans to be submitted by April 5th. On Tuesday morning, the Commonwealth Government released new terms for the RSA between the Government Development Bank and certain creditors built around exchanging debt into new bonds issued by a planned, securitized, municipal special purpose entity as it continues to pursue a consensual workout, under Title VI of PROMESA. Under the amended RSA, GDB's financial creditors will exchange their claims for only one tranche of new bonds at a 55% upfront exchange ratio. The previous version of the deal announced on May 15th allowed creditors to choose one of three tranches with various upfront exchange ratios and interest rates. Turning to Venezuela, concerns deepened as the government of Switzerland issued a series of sanctions effective Wednesday in response to political repression and human rights violations. These sanctions were done in alignment with similar measures taken by the European Union, according to the release from the Swiss Federal Council. 
Switzerland's sanctions also follow restrictions issued this year by other countries, including the United States, against nationals dealing in the petro-cryptocurrency and the expansion of Venezuelan officials under sanction. The Venezuelan presidential election campaign period is expected to start April 2nd. In addition to the stories supporting the recap, our other top red stories of the week were, number one, Toys R Us sum of the parts analysis includes Delaware liquidation proceeds, Taj, Propco valuations. Number two, First Energy Solutions files deactivation notice for three competitive nuclear generating plants in Ohio and Pennsylvania. And number three, Jones Day repped Catalina term lenders selected Evercore as financial advisor as group anticipates company potentially using 1L capacity to refi unsecured picks 2Ls. And now we'll pass it over to Jim in Houston for a preview of what's to come in the week ahead. Thank you, Nick, and a hearty welcome to Karen from the Republic of Texas. So let's get to it. Monday, April 2nd, a combined confirmation and DS approval hearing for Fieldwood Energy. The company filed in mid-February, announcing at the same time the purchase of the Noble's Deepwater Gulf of Mexico assets, in which they're probably itching to get cracking. All three voting classes have voted to accept the plan. There's one remaining objection from the U.S. trustee related to the MIP. Also on Monday, bids for Bonton Stores assets are due at 5 p.m., and Frontier Communications' tender offer expires at midnight. Frontier did note that as of the March 19th early tender deadline, notes tendered exceeded the aggregate minimum consideration, and thus the company did not expect to accept for purchase any tenders of notes after the tender early tender date. On Tuesday, April 3rd, more Gulf of Mexico action as the Cobalt debtors face a contested plan confirmation hearing. Both the UCC and the Ad Hoc Unsecured Group have objected, with the committee filing a motion seeking derivative standing to pursue avoidance actions against first lien and second lien note holders. And the second day hearing in Harvey Gulf is also due. The first day hearing was uncontested. Wednesday, April 4th, a confirmation pre-trial conference in the Cumulus Media Cases. Valuation looks to be the issue as both the UCC and the Ad Hoc Crossholder Group have filed objections. And Judge Kevin Gross will consider the EPA's entry into a settlement with Philadelphia Energy Solutions, which achieved plan confirmation last week. Thursday, April 5th, revised fiscal plans for the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico and several agencies are due after PROMESA last week uh, outlined a number of required changes. And on Friday, a milestone for the toys debtors after with a waiver of various defaults and defensive defaults under the various agreements and indentures related to the Taj are expected to expire. And Judge Mary Walrath is scheduled to consider proposed bid procedures for the Weinstein companies. For more, make sure you see our week ahead, which is released every Monday morning at 6.15 a.m. That is all. Karen and Nick, back to y'all. Thanks, Jim. As always, we'll be on the lookout for those developments in the coming days. And now we'll turn to our deep dive look at Community Health Systems, which amended its credit facility this week. An initial step as part of a larger restructuring effort to address its $14 billion funded debt load. This will be led by our distressed debt legal analyst, Teresa Lee. Over to you, Teresa. Thanks. So I have here with me today the team covering Community Health Systems, including Stephen Opper, Dan Nikolich, and Chase Collum. Stephen was formerly at Evercore and is now a distressed debt analyst at Reorg, while Dan was previously at Morgan Lewis and is now a Reorg Covenants analyst. Chase Collum is our reporter on the name, and he was formerly an infrastructure and power reporter for IJ Global. I also have with me Ian Halland from Reorg First Day, who manages the Reorg First Day database. That database provides insights on Chapter 11 filings and trends. It's great to have you all here with me today. 
we're on the topic of community health systems and the challenges faced by the healthcare industry. Community health has a significant amount of debt, $14 billion of funded debt on its balance sheet, with a revolving credit loan, the term loan G, a receivables facility, and a tranche of 8% senior notes, all coming due in 2019. The company's 2019 and 2020 maturities add up to more than $4.7 billion, and recently the company has been selling assets to help repay its term loan. It generated about $2 billion in gross proceeds in 2017. Community Health recently disclosed a potential restructuring proposal under which it would amend its term loan to increase junior secured debt capacity and then exchange its 2019 and 2020 senior notes for new, longer-dated second lien notes. The company also said that after those transactions are complete, it could seek to extend or refinance $1 billion of its term loan G. Ruerg reported that Community Health is working with Lazard to evaluate its restructuring options, and a group of the term loan G and H holders is being advised by Davis Polk. Now let's talk about this amendment first. The deadline to approve the amendment was on Thursday, March 22nd at 5 p.m. Community disclosed on March 26th that the amendment had received requisite approvals, but according to Reorg sources, it passed by a very slim margin. So, Chase, can you tell me about some of the issues surrounding this amendment? All right, Teresa, thank you. From uh, from what our sources have told us, there was concern from a group of term loan G and H lenders represented by Davis Polk around a lack of limitations on addition, uh, additional peri debt capacity. The term loan lenders were said to be attempting to protect their downside risk in case the company's efforts to address upcoming maturities are unsuccessful. In the week uh, leading up to the voting deadline, the group was having what was said to be constructive dialogue with the company, and these talks led to a handful of proposed modifications to the amendment. Uh, the modifications included lowered uh, pro forma first lien leverage ratio thresholds for asset sales sweeps of proceeds for mandatory repayment, uh, an MFN clause to increase yield on the term loan H in the event of term loan G extension and yield increase, uh, a limitation on the ability of non-guarantor subsidiaries to incur debt under the general debt basket, and a change so that the $300 million permitted under uh, the general liens basket cannot be used to incur liens on collateral. The modifications ended up falling short of the lender's expectations, with our sources referring to them as superficial non-starters. Uh, as a result, the group of lenders holding roughly 63% of aggregate outstanding principal on communities' G&H term loans was said to have voted against the amendment. The vote ultimately passed, however, as the group's holdings represented just under 50% of the total credit facility, which included the G&H term loans as well as communities' revolver. So Stephen, why would lenders be concerned about peri debt capacity? LTM secured leverage was just 4.7 times, but according to the company, they've been selling hospitals at 11 times EBITDA. What are the lenders' concerns here? And maybe you could walk us through the recent financials and the underlying trends in the business. Yeah, well, first of all, you know, the healthcare regulatory environment is fairly unclear, which adds an element of uncertainty for the business going forward um, from, from an investor perspective. Traditionally, community health focused on rural hospitals with the goal of isolating or purchasing hospitals that were somewhat exclusive in their individual markets. And as treatments are changing and there's shifts from inpatient to outpatient patient treatment and 
more points of service for various patients, community has been a little bit uh, late to the game and adjusting and also on focusing on aspects of recruiting um, certain physicians that focus on higher acuity type of patients. Um, they've been a little bit late in, in, in changing their, their practices. Um, I think one of the reasons is potentially that it's just more difficult to recruit physicians to areas that are more rural. Um, that's one fa- problem they faced through their history, but uh, I'm not sure that's the only thing. Um, admissions trends have been trending downwards for, for a number of quarters now. Adjusted admissions have been trending downwards. The company also has relatively high exposure to self-pay clients, and the legacy HMA facilities they purchased have uh, been a significant drag on the company since those assets were acquired. Um, now, one outstanding item is the company's cost structure going forward, especially as it continues to transform and deconsolidate. You know, one of the reasons why the company purchased so many other facilities and HMA in general to begin with was to build upon their economies of scale and to, to benefit from those. Um, and now as the company is deconsolidating, it's unclear what the cost structure um, will eventually look like and what it will shake out to be since the company is significantly smaller now. Now, all of these fundamental trends impact the value of the overall enterprise. And I think that um, first lien lenders in the situation were probably concerned about collateral dilution or potential collateral dilution from the incurrence of substantial peri debt. So, um, you know, even though you mentioned that the multiples, uh, the companies talked about it 11 times multiple sales, uh, I think it's also important to, to realize that as far as I know, the, that multiple is on a consolidated basis, which means that, um, it's not entirely representative of what other hospitals or the current portfolio of hospitals will sell like in the future. Since many of those hospitals in a consolidated multiple figure, uh, may have had zero or negative EBITDA. Um, so I'm not sure you can just slap an 11 times multiple on the rest of the facilities that they have. And it's really important to understand as much as possible, even though the, val- the, the data is not always uh, accessible, uh, it's important to understand uh, as deep and as detailed as possible what the value per facility going forward is, as there um, you know, may be differences uh, as to what those facilities can sell for and to what the entire enterprise looks like now. So, Stephen, as we discussed, the company has a significant amount of debt, about $14 billion. Can you give us an overview into the capital structure and what all the moving pieces are? How did the company find itself loaded with so much debt? Yeah, so this is all changing as we speak, but heading into the amendment, the company had about $8 billion of secured debt in the form of both loans and some secured notes. Uh, They also had a receivables facility and capital lease obligations and some other secured debt on the balance sheet. Now, behind that, uh, the company had three different series of uh, unsecured notes with a large tranche, uh, almost $2 billion worth of 8% notes due in 2019. Um, now, as the company goes, you know, going forward, uh, there's been some talk about how this could shift, um, potentially, uh, of some incremental secured junior debt, junior secured debt, uh, behind all this first lien debt, um, and, and, and how the company could potentially exchange some of the uh, unsecured into that secured. Uh, but essentially all of this debt, or a lot of this debt right now, uh, not all of it, but a large portion was used to fund the acquisition of HMA, um, which I'd referenced previously. And those assets really haven't performed um, as well as the company had initially um, hoped when they, when they purchased those assets. And so the, you know, the focus now has been on deconsolidating, on selling different assets, trying to pay down um, uh, primarily their loans, um, and then also 
you know, looking for different ways that the company can extend, uh, particularly the, you know, the 2019 maturities that you referenced, um, in order to, to, to kind of add to the runway. So in February, the company announced that it had entered into amendment to its credit agreement. That was separate from the most recently announced amended credit agreement. And what did that February amendment do, Dan? Yeah, so as the company also disclosed, the February amendment mainly added a first lien net leverage maintenance test in place of an interest coverage ratio maintenance test and a secured net leverage maintenance test. It also included some what the company called additional undertakings, um, and different one of these have been included in the past few amendments, and it, particularly in the February one, it related to the company's ability to reinvest asset sale proceeds. My main takeaway from that amendment, though, given the maintenance covenants changes, was that the company was looking to encourage junior lien debt. Okay, so now we're talking about the ability to add more secured debt. And we already addressed the amendment fight this week, but now that it's passed, what does that amendment do? Yeah, so more specifically to what Chase was saying earlier, the amended uh, credit agreement incorporates some of the other changes from earlier amendments. It limits certain debt and lien baskets, but more importantly, it also generally permits an unlimited amount of junior lien secured debt, as long as that new debt replaces existing debt. This change is consistent with the company's disclosures earlier this month, and it suggests that the company likely has cleared a path to exchange its 2019 and 2020 senior notes for new longer dated second lien notes. Interesting. And how much junior lien debt could the company potentially incur? Well, following the recent amendment, the limiting factor for the company's overall junior lien debt capacity may now be the debt and lien covenants under the 2023 notes. We estimate that the company's 2023 notes, which may be the most limiting series of all the notes since they were the ones most recently incurred, may permit about $5.8 billion of additional secured debt. So, Stephen, now that the term loan amendment appears to be complete, it seems like the next step in Community's proposal would be the exchange of the 2019 and the 2020 notes. One thing that could be interesting here is that Franklin Resources holds a very large amount of debt across Community's capital structure. As of January 31st, Franklin-affiliated funds had majority holdings of the 2019 and 2020 senior notes, as well as about 43% of the 2022 senior notes. Can you talk a little bit about what that might mean for community? Yeah, well, you know, clearly as a major creditor, Franklin appears to, to you know, be a, a factor here and will, will play a role in whatever restructuring um, takes place. It appears that that Franklin isn't actively looking to exit this investment since uh, our most recent information indicates that they've increased their holdings through time. And we're not, you know, I don't think we have a good good visibility into their loan holdings, but that their note holdings at least. Uh, so it's important to understand, I guess, what incentives everyone at the table has. The company here is looking to extend runway and potentially exchange near-term unsecured debt uh, in an up-tier exchange for longer-dated secured paper, and that's one way to potentially extend that runway. And the appetite for those unsecured note holders, uh, you know, what are they willing to uh, exchange at? All those dynamics, the pricing, um, what the eventual maturities are, that's all going to be, uh, you know, subject to negotiation and an interesting factor. Uh, but given the size of its investment, Franklin, uh, I would think that Franklin would be looking to extend the maturities and kind of keep the runway going for as long as possible. Uh, there seems to be a risk of holdouts in that situation, uh, particularly in the 2019s. Given the proximity to that uh, that maturity, I think you know if they see that Franklin is looking to extend that runway, and, and it seems here that lenders have been open to um, you know amending, amending, extending the runway for this company in the past. Um, I think there's a you know potential for holdouts, but either way, you know it appears that an exchange to extend is is kind of more of a short term fix here, and I think the company 
will le- would likely need to deleverage in some way, perhaps through capturing discount um, to really right size the capital structure. So you can extend the maturities, but really some deleveraging probably needs to take place outside of just selling assets to pay down debt because that's that's taken out some of the debt they've had on their balance sheet. But clearly, uh, you know, there's there's still um, uh, a lot of leverage here, uh, and uh, and some type of deleveraging tra- transaction will probably need to take place in order for there to be some sustainability going forward. So, Dan, are there any factors that would limit the full $5.8 billion? Well, it's hard for me to speculate whether the company will actually incur close to that number. I can tell you, though, that from a covenant's perspective, the debt and lien covenants in the notes are a bit tricky. In order to maximize the secure debt capacity, the company may need to rely on certain refinancing and or reclassification provisions. So, there's always a risk that they don't want to approach their documents that aggressively. Anyway, it's the read of reorg covenants that the baskets likely permit these reclassifications and refinancings. So, I think you're looking at a top number around $6 billion of junior lien debt capacity. However, keep in mind, under the credit agreement, this junior lien debt likely also needs to replace existing unsecured debt, so the total amount um, is limited in that respect as well. So, Stephen, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but the company is looking at divesting assets to help manage its debt load. What is the company looking at divesting in 2018? Right. You know, this this divestiture process has been ongoing since uh, 2016 or so. The company spun off 38 hospitals and Quorum Health Resources uh, for for about 1.2 billion. Uh, they sold Las Vegas, uh, a joint venture in Las Vegas, of four hospitals, and also the majority interest in their home care division. Um, and then, you know, the 2017 div- divestitures that was a large program. Um, you know, that generated 1.7 billion or so. Uh, and those hospitals were, were, you know, according to their figures, um, on a consolidated basis, low margin. Um, and so now it seems like they're looking to sell additional hospitals in 2018. Uh, for around 1.3 billion or so gross proceeds, and they've noticed the com- communities management's noted in their recent presentations and on calls that uh, I think they have around three definitive agreements for hospitals, uh, which are responsible for 91 million dollars in revenue and negative four million in adjusted EBITDA. Um, and there's 10 hospitals that they have um, with non-binding letters of intent. Um, and those are responsible, I think, for around $900 million of revenue and $22 million of adjusted EBITDA. And as far as I know, an indication to the company, and I, I'm sure this is um, also related to the, the recent amendment and debt pay, debt pay down requirements, but uh, you know, the proceeds from those asset sales should go to pay down uh, debt and deleverage. So, Ian, I want to turn to you for a bit. We've discussed this a few weeks ago on the podcast, but can you give us some insight into some of the major factors that are causing healthcare companies to file for bankruptcy? Absolutely. So we've seen many hospital operators struggle against an increasingly familiar theme of rising uninsured populations, increased patient bad debt, and shrinking reimbursement rates for the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. The majority of the hospital filers we've seen commence their cases in hopes of selling their assets or entering into strategic partnership with a larger hospital network. Only a few have sought to restructure. So it seems like selling hospital assets is a common strategy across the healthcare industry. Can you tell us a little bit more about the challenges facing the sector more broadly? Sure. Reorg First Day has reported on almost 80 healthcare bankruptcies since it lost, launched its coverage in June 2015. About 40 of them have been hospital operators, either general surgical hospitals hospitals or long-term care facilities and nursing homes. Some of these debtors own networks of hospitals in various regions or just operate a standalone facility. 
At least 15 noted significant cuts to Medicare and Medicaid or a severe dependence on uh, reimbursement rates for Medicare and Medicaid among the circumstances leading to their filings. Smaller regional hospitals are also struggling to compete with the larger hospital networks, both in patients and in talent. And what kind of trends have you seen in terms of hospital type and location? General hospitals and nursing homes and other long-term care providers are filing with the highest frequency, especially those operating in the South, particularly in Texas and in the Midwest, which combined account for over half of all of the hospital filings. And Community Health is headquartered in Tennessee and is the largest provider of general hospital health care services in the U.S. in terms of number of acute care facilities. So it will be interesting to see what happens with this company and whether it follows in line with other healthcare providers that we've seen filing for Chapter 11. So thank you to my guests, Dan, Chase, Stephen, and Ian, and thank you to all of our listeners for joining us on another podcast. Tune in next time. That's all for this week. As a reminder, you can access all Rio Research podcasts on our media page, or if you're not a subscriber, you can access them on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Karen Lung, and this has been The Week in Reorg. Join us next time on Reorg's weekly podcast.